it is Fifth Sunday. And so if you have preschool kids and you want to take them, uh, preschool and under can go to their class, and that's totally okay. If you're five year, your kindergarten and older, kindergarten stays with us today. And so um, I will dismiss the preschool kids if mom and dad want to walk them over. Otherwise, we'll get started. And as you notice, Fifth Sunday, we always have Donut Sunday, which is our way of torturing you because we're going to have your children sit in church with you for the full sermon, all hopped up on sugar. You're welcome. Today we're closing our series called Grow. We've spent uh, these eight weeks in the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, what we're closing with today is actually appropriate considering uh, Donut Sunday and Fifth Sunday. We're closing with self-control. As we've walked through each of these fruit of the Spirit, we've found them to be at times convicting and at times practical. And I really think this is one of those weeks that my prayer uh, heading into this Sunday is that this would be an intensely practical thing. Uh, Not just for you, but maybe uh, you who has influence over young people, you who is a parent, you who is a grandparent, that that not only can we apply these to our own lives, but we'll better understand how to help those around us find the peace that comes in self-control. So I'll start by a a definition. I would say self-control is the ability to recognize And choose the important thing over the urgent thing because your desires are properly ordered. Self-control is the ability to to recognize and choose the important thing over the urgent thing because your desires are properly ordered. These days we have oversimplified self-control into a series of techniques. Uh, With parenting, it's either uh, time out or it's a treat. What we've done is we've created a way of having an incentive or disincentive to get someone to do what we want them to do. It's kind of low-level manipulation, and we call it parenting. When I was growing up, I grew up Catholic in San Antonio, Texas, and um, it's not much different, I don't think, than growing up Catholic in Northwest Ohio. Our nuns were Irish, too. They just spoke Spanish. And so I spent nine years in a Catholic school growing up in San Antonio, and uh, first grade— I had Sister Angela. Sister Angela was older than time, fiercer uh, than the Lord himself, and she had a very clear way of uh, keeping order in her classroom, and it was called a ruler. And so uh, Sister Angela had a policy. If you ran afoul of the law, uh, the old chalkboards that had their little tray on it, your fingers went on the chalkboard, and you prayed that day she could find her yardstick because it was a little less thick than the ruler. The 12-inch ruler hurts way more than a yardstick. If you didn't know that, now you do. You're welcome. You do something wrong, your fingers go on the blackboard, and smack! Won't do that again. And then the next day, you do it again. If you did something right, not only was there a disincentive to bad behavior, but Sister Angela had a good incentive um, if you had good behavior, which is she had this drawer in her desk. Her desk was 750 years old, hewn from Irish wood, I think, and she would open this drawer if you did something good, And the angels would sing, ah, and the light would pour from this drawer, and you would look, and inside of this drawer, if you did not grow up Catholic, this will not make a ton of sense to you, she had holy cards. Holy cards. You see, the people laughing are people that know what this is. Holy cards are like baseball cards for saints. You got a picture on the front, their stats are on the back. You pull one out, Our Lady of Perpetual Sorrows, and then you turn it over, and there's all these, like, miracles, and you're, yeah, all right. And so, if you are bad, your knuckles hurt for a few hours. If you're good, you go back to your desk, and you're like, I got a St. Ignatius rookie card, and everybody's jealous. This is what life was like growing up for me. 
this is what, when we're honest, what most of our lives are like when it comes to self-control. Set up some disincentives, make it hurt. Set up some good incentives, reward ourselves. Mostly, when we look at where we lack self-control, our best idea is to try harder, to white-knuckle it. And so where I want to start today is in Proverbs 25, 28. The scripture says, like a city, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's important to understand in the time, the wall around the city was everything. It was everything. To have a city was to have a wall around your city. To not have a wall, to have the wall broken through, to have the wall toppled, to have the wall broken down, was to lose all semblance of order. If you think about it this way, commerce happened within the walls of the city. There were certain rules and regulations that only existed inside the walls. Outside the walls, when you read uh, the term wilderness, that's what is happening one step outside of the city, your wilderness. Inside the city, there's a society. Justice happened inside the walls of the city. Something that happens out in the wilderness, no control. But inside the walls, every city had their, their own sort of rules and regulations, their own justice and their own laws. With no walls, the wilderness pours in. Security. Imagine in a day when invasions were common and people came on foot and horseback. The way to prevent your city from being overtaken was to have a walled city with only a couple of gates. That way you knew where to put your defense. And so there was a gate here and a gate there and your people watched there and there was a tower atop each gate so that the lookout could see. And that way, if there was somebody coming to invade... It was easily defensible because you only had one or two places they could get in. But if you had no walls, you were vulnerable from all sides. Even within a city, there were walled districts. We'll talk about this in a month when we talk about what the first Christians were known for. But even within a city, there were different districts. The Jews had their district and the Greeks had theirs. And they had different rules here than they did there. Different customs on this side than that side. There were walls within the city. Because walls were security. If you read Nehemiah 1... You'll see Nehemiah weeping for days over Jerusalem after the walls had fallen. A city with broken walls is either a disaster waiting to happen or a disaster that has already occurred. What happens when a city is without walls is the citizens are left to scramble for survival. Because law and order is lost, because rules are gone, because security is no more. Citizens left scrambling for survival, and this is what the Bible says is of us who lack self-control. When we lack self-control, we are people who scramble from moment to moment looking to just survive. And so if self-control is the ability to choose what's important over what's urgent because your desires are properly ordered, then we have to think, what are these other desires, what are these other things we struggle with as a people in our society? Mostly when we think of lack of self-control, we think of addiction or, or sinful habits, We all, well, that self-control is is for those people who have this problem. The obvious ones come to mind. I say addiction, and everybody has the same list. It's alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, rage, eating, too much, too little. They're the same things. And yet, there are more subtle things under that that we don't often self-identify. Where do we spend our attention? 
What kind of thoughts do we have throughout the day? Anxiety, fear, jealousy. Are we impulsive? These are the things that are more easily applicable to our own lives. So even if you aren't struggling with one of the big capital A addictions at the moment, and there are people in here that are, we all have places where control is not ours. What we see is if even one section of a wall of the city is out, then the whole thing is blown. There's no point in having any wall if there's a section missing because the whole idea is the contained city. What happens if you have one section of wall out is the army can invade in and basically all control is lost. And the reality is when you lack self-control, you know it because you feel out of control in an area of your life. How do I know if I lack self-control? Maybe, but I'm not sure. Is there an area of your life where you feel slightly out of control? Like, do you ever get to the end of the month with your finances and you uh, look at your bank account or you look at your spouse and you say, where did the money go? Like, you got paid and I got paid, but we didn't make up any ground. You get to the end of a day and you go, "I I I took in how many calories? Wow. I mean, I didn't even realize it. You get to the end of a week and you think back and you go, I didn't even realize I was gossiping. I was just sharing that private prayer request with 600 people separately and it never occurred to me. Well, that's a lack of self-control with the tongue, a lack of self-control with our appetite, a lack of self-control with our finances. It's everywhere. You remember when, um, when phones became mobile and everybody was driving and talking on the phone at the same time, like before Bluetooth, before the hands-free revolution, which you all, I'm sure, do for the safety of our children, right? Remember the first time that you had like a, like a really engrossing conversation on the phone when you were driving, and you finished that conversation, and you, put, you hung up the phone, and you went, how did I get here? Do you remember that feeling? Where you're like, I, I'm right where I'm supposed to be, but I don't remember turning. I mean, I, and somehow you're like your subconscious drove, but you were in no way actually knowing where you were. I've had that feeling where you're like, I ended up where I was supposed to end up, but I have no memory of making that right or this left. Wow. And it's kind of this scary feeling like I I was in control of the car, but was I? And we start thinking about that, and that's that feeling with our finances. That's our feeling with our marriage. That's our feeling with our attention when we go, how did I end up here? We usually recognize our lack of self-control and quiet shame that we carry alone. And yet, Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. It's a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. If the wall is security, the tower is even greater security. The tower is the place where the lookout stands. The tower is the place where the archer is poised. If there's an attack on the horizon, the first person to see it is in the tower. They call out that there's an attack, there's an invasion, there's intruders. And everyone outside of the city at that time, whether they're farming or they're rummaging, whatever they're doing, when they hear there's an attack, they run into the city. They run into the walls of the city, they start to lift the gate, they make sure everybody's in their battle positions, and they wait for the invaders to come. What happens when the wall gets breached? 
So there are then times in battle in these ancient cities where the wall is breached, the gate is knocked down, and all of a sudden the defenses are no more. And then where do the people go? They're already inside the walls. Then the people flock to the towers, and everybody tries to get into these towers. There are these fortified places of safety. Why? You don't have to be a student of military history to know that high ground is always defensible. If you want to be in a fight with somebody, you want to be on higher ground. They got to come up to get you. What's really being said here in Proverbs 18, what's really being said is that everyone runs for their ultimate security. Everyone runs for their ultimate security. Everyone runs to something. So it uses the wealthy in verse 11 as an example. There's no sin in having money. There's no sin in money. Money is neutral. We have established that. But it's saying the wealth, the wealthy, they, they believe that their, their wealth is somehow security. And they will run to it. They imagine it's a, a wall too high to scale. They imagine it's a wall that can't be toppled. And yet anybody who's um, in this room is in the top 2% wealthiest people in the world. So congratulations. If you didn't know you were really wealthy, you are. There are people all over the world that uh, can't imagine the wealth and the comfort that we have. And so before we go, well, that's someone else, that's us. We are all that. And yet we all know that no amount of money or comfort, no amount of inches on our TV screen, none of those things are unscalable. None of those things eliminate uh, friction in a home. None of those things get rid of um, sinful habits. None of those, you, you can't buy your way into a better marriage. You can't buy your way into, it just doesn't work. Money doesn't raise your kids. Money can't earn salvation. And so the scripture is pointing out this one example, but we could take it anywhere else. What we learn is we, we all carry these imaginary saviors. So yours, if you wanted to self-diagnose, you would say, if I have blank, I'd be really happy all of a sudden. Like the thing missing in my life is blank. And if I just had that, man, I'd be happier. I'd be better. I'd be safer. I'd be more secure. If I just had a bigger house, if I just had a better job, if I just had a a change in this relationship, if I just had what? That thing you wake up thinking about, that thing you go to bed dreaming about, if I just had blank, I'd be safe, I'd be secure, I'd be whole. So your idols are revealed where you run in times of distress. So the people would run into the walled city, and then if the city is broken, the people would run to the towers. When we find stress in our lives, when we run into challenge and trial, where we run is how we find our idols. Where do you turn for security when you feel most vulnerable? Turn to a drink. Turn and double down on your job. We turn to sports to be distracted. We turn to entertainment to live vicariously through someone whose life doesn't seem to have my problems. We turn to a person. Cornelius Plantinga wrote this book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's this beautiful, brilliant little book on sin. And he says this, addictions start as stress relievers that eventually create their own stress. All addiction starts as a stress reliever that eventually creates its own stress. It spirals into trying to cure pain with the thing that caused it in the first place. And so the obvious easy one is a drink. I have a tough week at work, and let's say I want to go home and I want to just take the edge off. I have a drink. That worked. Took the edge off. I kind of relaxed a little bit. My shoulders come down, and I go, okay, we're going to make it. 
And the next week, one, one doesn't work, so I have one and a half, or then eventually I'm having two drinks after work, or eventually I'm having a drink more than at the end of the week. I'm having every day of the week, and it's two, and now it's four, and now it's six, and suddenly I, I wake up and I recognize I might have a drinking problem, which creates its own stress, and yet the problem is where I go to relieve stress is to a drink. And so I double down because I don't know where else to go. That's my pathway. That's where I run. That would be an example That goes a lot of different directions. It's not just drugs. It's not just alcohol. Money. For some in the room, money makes us feel significant or secure. And so when we face insecurity, when we face insignificance, when we're stressed by those things, we turn back to money. I'll just work harder. I'll just make more. I'll I'll get a raise. I'll get a promotion. I'll, I'll show them I matter. And so we go from a 45-hour week to a 60-hour week to an 80-hour week, which creates what? Its own stress. So now there's stress in the home because where are you all day? There's stress in the home because I'm doing this for you. And the stress doubles down and it creates its own loop. And so what does the man do then when he faces this stress at home and he feels insecure and insignificant at home because of what he's chasing at work? Where does he run? He runs to the only place that makes him feel secure and significant, which is right back to work. The math works any direction we want to take it. It works with sex or food or the internet. It works with um, relationships. It works if we want to chase these things and we allow them to become our place of refuge, then eventually they'll show themselves to be insufficient. Plantinga says that all of this is driven by a longing of the heart. I've heard this before in a lot of different ways. It's a beautiful concept that all sin is actually um, the drive of our heart, the longing, the design that God has given us just slightly off course. When a man wants to provide for his family, that's a great thing. That's his biblical call that he should love his family and he should provide for them and take care of them and lead them. When it's one degree off course, all of a sudden it falls into sin. A man should desire a woman, a woman should desire a man, and when it's Just out of context, it becomes a problem. Same is true with all these things. They're all desires. God has given us the earth to enjoy. And it's different to have a great meal than it is to have gluttony. What Plantinga would say is we're chasing a faint reflection of the strong tower. That we want the right thing and we're just a degree off here. We're a degree off there. We're not quite aware of where we are. And we have to kind of get eyes to see who are we and what is it that we're about. Jonathan Edwards says, we always choose what we really want. This is important because a lot of times we'll get into a position in our lives or we'll be in a place of sin or a place we're not really proud of and we'll go, well, I didn't didn't want to be here. I didn't choose this. I've never have asked for this in my life. Right? No one wakes up in the morning and chooses to find themselves in addiction. That's not someone's desire when uh, they're graduating high school and they're writing their thing on a yearbook, I'm going to be an addict, see you later. Like, no one says that. It's no one's desire. And the falsehood we fall into is that I didn't really want this. And Edwards would say, in that moment, you did. The example would be if I were getting mugged right now. And I'm grateful I'm not. And somebody was here and they said, give me your wallet. I have a choice to make. 
Do I want my wallet? I do want my wallet. I do not want to give you my wallet. But I want my life more. So here's my wallet. Did I want to give you my wallet? No. But in that moment, I absolutely did. I chose my greatest want. I chose my greatest desire in the moment. When faced with a choice, we always choose what we really want. And so often we want Jesus. We want to be followers of God. We want to be righteous. We want to be holy. We want Jesus. Just not as much as we want the thing we actually end up choosing. Why? How do we end up there? We're here on a rainy day where I said you could be snuggled up in your bed listening to the rain pitter-patter. It's a perfect fall day to just be at home and you're here because you want to choose Jesus. So how do we end up in a place where we don't? If a farmer has 10 acres, and he says, this is my prize acre, my favorite acre. I love this acre. It's my best acre. It'll grow the best. It's got the best soil. It's got the best drainage. This is the best acre. And he spends all of his time on these other nine acres, weeding and fertilizing, preparing the land, tending to them, cultivating them, And looks up at the end of the growing season and that one acre doesn't have anything growing. He can say it's his favorite acre, but where does he spend his time? If the farmer doesn't spend his time in this place where he says it's his favorite, then then either the farmer's life is out of order or the farmer's desires aren't quite being honestly portrayed. And this is where we are. This is where we find ourselves. And there's no guilt here. This is called life. This is called uh, modern 2016, I live in America, and there's a lot going on. How much time a week do you spend cultivating your relationship with Christ versus cultivating your relationship with sports or food or whatever? Is there anything wrong with sports? Nothing. What a blessing that we get to get together as people and cheer And have these kind of transcendent experiences where we get to support people to higher character, to greater achievement. That's fun. But if we wonder why we love sports more than we love Jesus, even though Jesus is our favorite, he's our favorite acre. I would say, how many hours do you spend reading ESPN.com versus your Bible? I have lived that life for years and years and years and years. I was the person who in 2003, I grew up a Cubs fan. We had WGN. It's all we had. Try for me. Loved baseball like nobody's business. I once read a book called Baseball for Brain Surgeons. I loved it so much. Every year was our year. Just wait till next year. Had my Cubs jersey in 2003. They're really good. They're going to win it all. And then this thing happens in this critical playoff moment where this poor fan in a turtleneck with little headphones on, Steve Bartman reaches out over the wall and takes the ball away from the outfielder. What would have been the end of the inning? Steve Bartman, and he, he kind of ruined the whole thing. The ball falls to the ground. The outfielder throws his glove and yells at the fan, and this curse that's almost 100 years old continues. The Cubs unravel. They lose the game. I hear this moment as the world's biggest Cubs fan on a drive. I'm going to celebrate with friends as the Cubs are finally going to make the World Series. And I hear this, and I pull over, and I thought, I am way too emotionally attached. (laughs) And in 2003, I gave up baseball. 
I did. Cubs are in the World Series. I don't care. But I had to realize somewhere I was way too emotionally attached. People make pilgrimage. We would go every year to Wrigley Field. We would sit in the bleachers and we'd soak up the sun and we'd drink it in deep. And every year is going to be our year. And I'd spend time thinking about it and reading about it. In college, I was a sports writer for this thing called the internet, which was really new. And somebody paid me to do it. It was fun. And somewhere along the way, I realized if I say I love this acre and I spend all my time on these nine, I can't be surprised when my life doesn't resemble the thing I wish it did. We have to figure out what that is for us. What, what, what do we do then? How, what do we do? How, how do we get rid of the one and, and, and establish another? How do we get our lives properly ordered? Because balance is good and fun is good and diversion. These are all okay things. Thomas Chalmers says it's the expulsive power of a new affection. The only way to rid ourselves of, an, of one affection or a habit is to replace it with a greater affection. Which is to say it this way. Let's say you wanted to uh, go on a clean eating spree. You say, I'm done with junk food. I'm over it. We're out. We're going all fresh all the time. You go to the store. You buy vegetables like no one's ever seen before. You're picking up things and smelling them. You don't even know what they are, but they're in your cart. You're going to eat clean. You get home. You lay all your vegetables out on the counter. You look at yourself. You feel so good. I'm already feeling healthier. About 11 o'clock at night, you're winding down for the night, and you got that little rumble, and you go, maybe I should have something. It'll help me sleep better. You go, and you open up the kitchen, and you turn on the light, and you see all those vegetables sitting there, and you look in the freezer. I still got a little bit of ice cream. And you have ice cream. You find an Oreo. There's a muffin left over from yesterday. That sounds good. Why? Because you haven't gotten rid of anything. We can say we want to do this new thing, but until we get rid of the old thing, nothing happens. The only way to make that happen, anybody who's ever tried it will tell you, you have to take all the junk food out first so that when you are hungry, when you have this desire for uh, satiation, you go into the kitchen and you have no other option. All I can do is eat a bell pepper. How satisfying is that? Oh, you're salivating thinking about bell peppers right now. You love the idea. That's how it works. There has to be a greater affection. Otherwise, the old one will never go away. Eventually, we all realize none of our habits, none of these things, they don't satisfy. They never can. Nothing fulfills us except the ultimate good, except God himself. Nothing will quite fulfill us. They all can get close. They're tantalizingly close, but they're not ultimately there. So what is your tower? Where do you run? James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. So to run to God is to resist the devil. To run to God is to resist the devil. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that, often, that offers salvation to all people. It brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace appears that helps us say no. 
I don't know how you were taught grace, but for me, grace was, it's okay, maybe next time. That's what grace is, as I was taught. Grace means you deserve this, but it's okay, you'll get them next time, tiger. I'll give you grace. And the Bible is saying grace teaches us to say no. Grace is our way to self-control. This is not how we teach self-control. We teach it, time out, you're grounded, you're written up, you're laid off, hands on the chalkboard, son. That's how we teach self-control. In short term, fear actually works, right? Fear works to make us more driven in the short term. But in the long term, it makes us more anxious. And it compounds problems. And so what we find today is that people who are, are kind of motivated by fear end up finding a religious box. If I just check all these boxes, if I just do the religious thing, what we do then is we instinctively choose the city without walls. Because I don't, don't, don't tell me what to, don't pin me in. That box is tight. Everybody has known of a teenager that needed freedom, that needed freedom, they need freedom. I don't want to live under your rules. I don't want to live under your house. And the freedom they desired was that which devoured them. The freedom that they desire is that which consumes them once they're out of the house. And they go, ah, how did I end up here? So what beautiful counterintuitive irony is that the place of greatest security and freedom is locked in the tower. Safe from the bands that steal, kill, and destroy. It says the gospel has appeared. It's appeared. What does that mean? The grace of God has appeared. It's talking about Jesus. Grace has appeared. So, so what gives us the ability to say no? It says the grace of God that has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. It is the grace it teaches us to say no. It's Jesus. How's that for your Sunday school answer? The gospel is this. Jesus was run out of the city. Jerusalem was a walled city. Jesus came in and he was crucified on the outskirts. They walked him out of the city and put him on a cross. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Jesus became radically vulnerable so we could be absolutely secure. Jesus was dragged out of the city so that we might run into it. Jesus was given death so that you and I might know life. This is the gospel. This is grace. And it says grace teaches us. Grace, the, the word there literally means it argues with us. Grace argues with our flesh. Grace tells us that the desires of my flesh, while they may be good, they may feel good, they're not good enough and they'll never satisfy. Grace argues with us to say it's not sufficient, it's not enough, there's something greater, there's something better. Salvation isn't in this world. And so if Jesus and his salvation and grace and healing and right relationship become your ultimate thing, the place you run, you'll finally realize what it's like to be satisfied. You'll finally realize what you actually have. And you realize that all the things you thought you had to have, all those things that brought on fear and anxiety, all those things that led to habits and addictions, you'll realize that all of those things are exactly what the Bible says they are. They're simply distractions from the ultimate thing we're here to be about. And the desire for those things will fade only as the desire for Jesus grows. This is the power of a new affection. And it's a journey. We are about progress, not perfection. You will hear me say many times over the years to come, it is okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. 
It's okay not to be okay. But the invitation of Scripture is don't stay there. When you recognize it, when you see it, when you feel it, gosh, I didn't know, but gosh, this conviction comes over. I hadn't even considered this area of my life. Oh, Grace is to say it's okay not to be okay, but don't stay there because there's something better on the other side. The beauty of being a follower of Jesus is that our stumbles, our failures, our worst days are actually the very thing that allow us to realize the beauty of what's been done for us in Jesus. The beauty of grace is seen most clearly when we fail. We learn that we're fully loved and fully accepted, not because we are good at what we do, not because our works are just right, but because of his work. So when we find ourselves under conviction, when we find ourselves beating ourselves up, that's the moment to go, isn't God great that this is not the measure by which I'm judged, but it's the measure of Christ? So how do we find more self-control? You find yourself running to the strong tower that is God. You find yourself ordering your life in such a way that their prized acre is the one you're actually cultivating. Or do you just try harder? What I know to be true, what so many of you know to be true, is that our safety, our security, our hope, our joy, our salvation are in nothing less than Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would uh, confess. I confess. So often we uh, fall short. I fall short of uh, holding you as my prize, as seeing you as the strong tower of, uh, in moments of distress, of running to you. Father, we hold these idols, these, uh, these faint reflections of who you are. We run to these things. And yet, Father, what is true is they never satisfy. God, my prayer is that that dissatisfaction in the things of this world would be grace to us. That in that we would recognize the beauty of you and the beauty of your work on the cross and your resurrection that we would see in those moments of our own failure, our own dissatisfaction or insignificance. Father, we would see that our significance is in you and our satisfaction is in you. Father, that uh, this is a place that we are allowed to try and fail. This is a journey where we are allowed to stumble. So God, may your grace teach us along the way that we would be growing and progressing to something more like you, that this community in these walls would feel safe and secure to fail together so as to grow in Christ's likeness so that the community outside of the walls of this church would be radically impacted and transformed by the grace and the love that overflows from us as your children. So, Father, thank you for your word and for the fruit of the Spirit. May it be evident in us for all to see. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to do what we do every week, which is uh, take communion together as a family. Jesus left this for his uh, followers. He said, when you eat of the bread, think of me. When you drink of the cup, remember me. And so as followers of Christ, this is what we do. We have an every week remembrance and every week Uh, trip down memory lane where it stops us from all the distractions, the good and the bad. It stops us and pulls us out of all the things we're thinking about that are happening outside of here. 
the appointments we have to keep and the things on our list. And for just a moment, we walk up to a simple table and we, we take a simple piece of bread and we dip it in the cup and we remember that Christ loved me so much that he laid his life down for me. And as a result, I live, and I live this life free. And I live eternity free because of that. And so we want to invite you in the course of the next couple songs to uh, take with us. Whenever you feel led to get up and make your way to the table, if that is uncomfortable for you, that is okay with us. There's no pressure to get up or move if you are still in a place where you're asking questions and maybe you're not even quite there yet. You are in the right place. God has you here for a reason. And my, my ask of you would be, you would allow the music to saturate your soul as you consider whether what you hear is truth, whether Jesus is who he says he is. And then we'll celebrate with you on the day that you stand up and say, yeah, I, I believe this. Because we believe that that grace is irresistible. And once it grabs you, there's no going back. And so as Greg leads us, we take together.